David Solomon. Podcasts on topics ranging from Jewish history and the Bible to Jewish mysticism, philosophy and thought. To find out about David's talks, books and more, visit davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. Dear listeners, this podcast episode contains a few moments of sound interference. We apologize for any inconvenience this may cause and hope you still enjoy the talk. This talk is kind of a synthesis of two talks that I've been giving over the last few hours and last few years. <laughs> I've also been giving the last few hours. Um, the, la- the last few years uh, under the title of Kabbalah in One Hour and they're two very different talks. Uh, there's a talk that I kind of give everywhere and then there's a talk that I give in certain places where people want things that are much more whoa, bit ooga booga, la la and you know a kind of a more self-transformative kind of cuddly-feely talk uh, and neither of them have really ever made me that satisfied and I am going to try tonight to synthesize the two what I will warn you and what I will preface before anything is that it is impossible to talk about this subject without going into some ideas that for some of you will be mystifying but perhaps even incomprehensible and you won't necessarily understand what I'm talking about. I'm also, I'm also telling you that even if you do understand what I'm talking about, and I'm sure many of you will, many of you will, be aware that there are layers deeply hidden in the crevices between the things I'm going to talk about. That is the nature of the topic. Kabbalah, for want of a better word, is a subject I have spent a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of time with. And it is the one subject of all the things I teach that where I know enough that I could probably call myself a student. (laughs) It is, in fact, uh, something I've uh, started when I was young. But it needs some unpacking, it needs some unraveling. And one of the great things that's missing when people talk about Kabbalah today, when they go into it, is a wider framework context of what it is and where it sits and what it's trying to do and what its main outlines are in terms of ideas and in terms of its experiential effect. So I want to cover all of those things and if we can achieve one thing, it's to come out this evening understanding that basic framework so that when the word Kabbalah comes up at that fancy dinner party you're all attending, that you will know what it is and you'll be able to at least listen or contribute intelligently on the major things and you'll also hopefully be able to sort out when people are talking nonsense as so often happens in this field. There's a lot we're going to say and I'm going to preface it the way that all Kabbalistic texts preface themselves. There are many, many roads into Kabbalah but they all start from one basic point that all texts talk about. I thought it would be ridiculous if I didn't at least point to that for just a minute. I'm going to talk about something for a minute and some of you are going to go, why is he talking about that? But it becomes evident the deeper we go into it. So just give me a minute. And that is that 
99% of Kabbalistic texts want us to understand that the study of Kabbalah requires a certain, what we might call, in today's terms, a certain vibration of consciousness. It's not just another subject that we can dip our heads into. When we learn philosophy, as we did last week, we take our very good instruments called our minds and we bring rational ideas and we go, oh, that makes sense, or that's stupid, or I can believe that. But Kabbalah works in entirely the opposite spectrum. It's not dealing with rationality. It has some extremely reasonable and rational parameters to it. But it is not fundamentally dealing with what the human mind has come up with as an understanding of reality. It is completely based upon revelation, which is the other form by which we, as a people, as a tradition, as a spiritual continuum in the world, the way that we know things. And last week we spoke about rationality, and tonight I want to talk about revelation. But all Kabbalistic texts point to a particular verse that they want to encapsulate this, what we might call vibrating superconsciousness. Anyone know what that verse is? What is the verse that is the foundation of all Kabbalistic speculation and introspection and study? When I say the verse, some of you are going to be, it's a biblical verse, and some of you are going to be familiar with it. And you're going to go, oh yes, of course. And some are going to go, oh, is that a verse? It is. Reshit Chochmah Yirat Hashem. Which, if we were to very, very basically kind of art scroll translate that, it will look something like the beginning of wisdom yet is the fear of the Lord. That's how that verse would look in something like an art scroll translation. But that's not what it means. Naturally. The word reshit is a huge word in Kabbalistic discourse. It, of course, means beginning, and we find that in the very first word of the Torah itself, Bereshit, in the beginning. And the verse is telling us that Reshit is Chokhmah. Is this thing called Chokhmah. Chokhmah is, what do you think Chokhmah means? What does Chokhmah mean? People think wisdom. Wisdom is a meaning of Chokhmah. But Chokhmah is actually fundamentally translated as Chokhmah. <laughs> Once we start understanding that, we can start putting ourselves in the Kabbalistic consciousness because Chokhmah is not just a word. It is a word composed of two other words. Those two other words that compose the words Chokhmah are the words Koachmah, the power of what. And Ma itself is a huge configuration in Kabbalistic discourse because Ma, meaning what, is the numeric value 45 and the same numeric value as the word Adam. The power of humanity. Reshit Chochmah. Reshit Chochmah. But we're dealing with but the other meaning. Of, what's another meaning of Chochmah? I'm going to tell you what I think is the English equivalent that best encapsulates Chochmah on, as 
in contrast or in comparison to wisdom. It does mean wisdom, but it also means what we might understand as science. Chokhmatateva, what they call the sages Chokhmatateva, the science of nature, which is really a, a, a general word for all natural sciences. When people talk about Chokhmat HaKabbalah, they very often refer to what really they mean is the science of Kabbalah. And these two understandings of the word Chokhmah really are reflected in the two basic, basic overarching ways in which Kabbalah has been understood by different streams of thought. Some see it as a deep, intuitive, revealed, mystical wisdom. And mystical because you really only, the words are really only a conduit to the actual thing that you're seeking behind them. Or they have understood Kabbalah as a type of science. That you can actually take certain axioms and paradigms and meditations and practices and you can create certain energies and you can affect yourself, you can affect the world, you can do things. Or, even if you're not doing things, it does give you a framework, a cosmological framework by which to understand this reality. That is a science. So these two really are the ways in which Kabbalah has been looked at. And I'm hoping that I can touch upon some of those trends of thought so we can see how they evolve into what Kabbalah is today. And then, of course, this phenomenal expression, Yirat Hashem. So you say to most people, what's the meaning of the word yira? And they go fear. But really in Hebrew, fear is pachad. What do we mean when we say the word yira? Awe. And what are we in awe of? Yirat what? Yirat? Now we say Hashem, meaning the name. And I've written that as a hay with a little chupchik on it. To represent that. But really... What Kabbalistic literature is talking about when they say the awe of, of the name is they mean the awe of the actual name. We have a name of God in the Torah that we don't ever pronounce. One, because it's too holy to pronounce and two, because we're not even sure how to pronounce it. It's composed of the letters Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey. I don't want to draw it on the board because I won't be able to rub it out. But, Kabbalah is very, very concerned with our consciousness of what we call in Kabbalistic literature. We switch the letters of the name around and we call it the name of Havaya. And Havaya, which is composed of the name of God, the letters of the name of God, but switched around, that word Havaya itself means being. The beginning of Chokhmah is the awe of being. Now, that's a preface that all Kabbalistic books are telling you, and I think it's worth us being aware of that, that we are dealing with a very, very delicate and very sensitive and very mystical set of thoughts and ideas and revelations, but it is possible to get an understanding of how they, where they originated from and how they evolved throughout the last 
particularly the last eight, nine hundred years of Jewish history. Some people think that Kabbalah, and they're not wrong, it's just the terminology, but some people think that Kabbalah is an overall word for all things Jewish and mystical. Sometimes you see that. Kabbalah is Jewish mysticism. And to a point, that's true. But the Jewish mystical tradition, that is, this idea that not everything we see is really what's going on. What's beneath the surface? What revealed, what reality that's not immediately apparent to us until we become conscious of it, what reality is revealed to us? What cosmic foundation underlies this world and what are we doing here and what role do we have to play in it and how can we be a part of it and affect it? Those Jewish mystical traditions go much further back. We have evidence of Jewish mystical traditions in the Torah itself. Hanistarot la The hidden things are for God. And we're just dealing with the revealed things. But we see it very strongly right throughout the Talmudic literature. The whole concept of what they call Heichal mysticism. The idea of divine chambers which can either represent some imagining that there are these actual chambers of ascent, or it represents, and more than likely represents, a kind of mystical meditative ascent type uh, practice that was very much a part of the way that Torah was taught in the ancient world, and that we subsequently kind of lost that perspective on, as we have lost so many other things in this long and horrible exile. And we see it right throughout the Gaonic period, building up and building up this idea that there is a mystical body of literature. When you read, for example, even the biblical book of Ezekiel, you can see that there is some deep mystical reality. The whole mysticism of the throne that you can read about in chapter 1 of the book of Ezekiel is a fundamental text for Kabbalists because it deals with this idea of a hidden reality. That's not so hidden when you know where to see it. And throughout the Gaonic period until we work up towards the year 1000, we're seeing some texts appear that are trying to understand what was meant in the Talmud by the whole teachings to do with the Merkava, to do with the chariot. And since we're on that subject, what are the secrets to do with the whole account of creation in the Bible? Remember from last week that already as we're moving towards the 1000 we are moving intellectually towards realizations that the Torah and the holy text that we have aren't necessarily having to be read literally. That there are many underlying layers to them. We already have Midrash and now we're being told that we have this entire layer of allegory and maybe we also have a deep mystical meaning to the Torah as well and that is becoming evident. And we have a book written that we think was composed now. Ah, once again. Oh, by the way, I meant to mention, of course, that this talk, this entire series actually, has been sponsored by Phil and Sue Lewis in uh, memory of their, their late friend Johnny Baker, scholar and a gentleman of blessed mention and memory. But there, and I have to remind myself that, of course, uh, where I am, 
and we have to respect the parameters of this institution in which we're giving this talk. So I do need to treat my subject with delicacy and circumspection. But I'm also not going to stand here and tell you what scholars do not know. And we do not exactly know when the book Sefi Yitzira, who's put your hand up if you know of the book Sefi Yitzira, if you've ever heard of that book. All right. All right. Sefer, what's the meaning of the word Sefer? Very good. Sefer Yitzira, the book of formation or the book of creation. A very, very, very mystical book. It deals with the whole fundamental anatomic nature of creation. It can also, if you study it properly, teach you how to create a golem. My name. I know. <laughs> the book of formation is not, strictly speaking, a Kabbalistic text in the way that Kabbalah is understood in today's world of scholarship. But the terms used in the book of Yitzhira, which we now recognize as kind of like a mixture of rabbinic theology and Pythagorean mathematics on crack, is really, it's the names, it's the terms that are used in Sefer Yitzhira that then flowed in to later works that we can now understand this terminology in a fundamentally Kabbalistic way. I will explain what that means. Traditionally, Sefer Yitzhira was said to have been written by Rabbi Akiva back in the Tanaitic period, or perhaps even much further back by Avraham Avinu, by Abraham the Patriarch himself. We don't have evidence of that. What we do know is that Sefer Yitzhira appears at some point in the late Gaonic. But it contains elements that are clearly reflective of a much older type of approach. The word that is used in Sefer Yitzhira that becomes a very, very important word that we're going to be talking about in Kabbalistic thought itself is, of course, Sefer Yitzhira is the first book to really use the term Sefirot. And we're going to be talking more about what the Sefirot are, but when the Sefer Yitzhira uses the word Sefirot, it's really dealing with it more as numbers as fundamental or primal mathematical entities or something whatever you think you think Sefer is talking about it's not laying them out in the way that Kabbalistic literature is going to understand the Sefirot do not be confused I have not yet explained what Sefirot are so if you're sitting there going but I don't know what Sefirot are that will become evident I'm just mentioning that because some of you will be going what about Sefer the Sefer exists it's very early but it's not strictly Kabbalistic. But it has terms that we use in Kabbalistic books. Now, you would remember from last week, yeah, that Jewish philosophy in the, in the high Middle Ages, when we talked about, remember we spoke about Jewish philosophy going through its Aristotelian phase, yeah? When did that kick off? It kicked off more or less at the beginning of the 12th century, in the 1100s. Yeah? About 900 years ago. Avraham ibn Dawood, followed very closely by Maimonides, by the Rambam, and so on. 
and they're all going, oh, Aristotle's science, let's, here we've got the Torah, let's try and make one match the other. Judaism is this big rational project, menang, menang. But at precisely the same time, there's a whole bunch of different, very, very spiritually inclined people dwelling in Spain and particularly in southern France in places like Provence who were seeing things very different to that. Now, if we were to come now as scholars of the 21st century and be very kind of clever in an evolution of ideas kind of way, then we could come along and we could say, well, what emerges really is rabbinic Judaism's attempt to bring under its own framework two very, very important and influential and deeply seductive ideas that have been floating around in the world for quite some time and affecting religions and spiritual systems. And those two very big ideas are on the one hand, as we discussed last week, Neoplatonism, and I'll remind you what Neoplatonism is. Put up your hand if you remember me saying that last week. Exientes, three people. <coughs> Neoplatonism, which is not any one single school, it's a broad spectrum of ideas, but it is trying to bridge Plato's concept of a realm of ideal forms which we might call heaven, we might call that anything, but it's not here, it's up there somewhere. And this pretty bunged up world. How do we, you know, with all its pluralism and corruption and differentiation, so how are we bridging that gap? And Neoplatonism's basic solution is to bridge it through a series of graded emanations. So you start with perfect emanations and gradually the light gets more and more and more concealed and congealed until you have this. We are a kind of a, you know, you would almost imagine, remember BCR technology, right? So imagine, uh, you know, we're like a fourth, fifth generation copy, except that the Neoplatonics would be telling us that we're more like kind of something like a thousand generation copy of what the realm of ideal forms is, but we look like it, but we're not it, because we're just reflecting it, but you have these series of emanations, and those, that, that, those levels of emanation can be ascended and descended mentally and spiritually, and also creation is affected through those emanations. So on the one hand, we've got Neoplatonism, and the other big idea they want to get to bring in, which is, once again, a very, very, very influential idea throughout religions and spiritual systems. We see it, in fact, right across, not just the Middle East, but going deep into Europe and deep into the Orient. We see this idea, which today we would group under the general, the general umbrella of Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism is many things. But one particular aspect of Gnosticism is that the world is represented as a fundamental and primal conflict between two forces, good and evil. We can see, in fact, <laughs> those of you giving up oh, Gnosticism, 
what do I think about that Gnosticism? Should be aware that Gnosticism again reared its head amazingly in late 20th century, early 21st century popular culture. All of those movies you're so fond of watching, or I'm so fond of watching rather, you know, everything from The Matrix, Lord of the Rings, all of these represent this fundamental Star Wars, classic Gnostic movie, the fight between the side of light and the side of darkness, good and evil. So some could argue that Kabbalah is really an attempt to bring Neoplatonism and Gnosticism under the wing of Rabbinic monotheism. And in a sense, that's not, in a sense, that's not incorrect to see it in the, frame it in those terms. But it's much, much more than that. Remember that the Jewish people do not exist through history in order to stand still and tell everybody to bog off. <laughs> it's not what we're doing. We are revealing the will of the Creator through history by synthesizing as much and processing and elevating ideas as much as rejecting them. There are ideas that the Jewish people have to reject. A priori. But there are many, many ideas about the world that are endemic to the cultures and societies and generations in which we live. And we need to absorb those and elevate them and understand them. So you might say, well, the Kabbalah is much more than that. But I wanted to make that preface. Because in the 12th century, around the time that philosophy is kicking off, the first genuinely what we would call a Kabbalistic text, which is still studied, it's still with us, appears. It's regarded as probably the, 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 the earliest book that we definitively call Kabbalistic, because it's dealing with the Spirit. And that book, which is written probably in Provence, or it appears in Provence for the first time, it may contain older elements, but we know it from the early 11th century, and that book is, early 12th century, must I, early 1100s, and that book is the... No, 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 no. The Zohar is another, is a century later. In fact, in fact, it's a century and a half later. This is the first one before the Zohar. When I say it, some of you, probably you, are going to go, oh. And some of you have heard of it. <coughs> it is, of course, the Bahir. There's a very important text called the Bahia. Now, I'm not, this is not a lecture on the Bahir, which maybe it should be, but the Bahir, what the Bahir does, and the Bahir is attributed to Rabbi Nechunya ben Akane, so it's attributed to a Tana who's living hundreds and hundreds or a thousand years earlier. And the Bahir presents itself as a Midrash. And maybe it does contain some older Midrashic elements, but there's one fundamental theme running through it that we have not seen before. And that is this idea of the Sfirot. Now I need to explain what the Sfirot are because moving forward from here without that is going to be difficult. And in explaining the Sfirot, I'm now entering into discussing actual Kabbalistic ideas and not just the history of it. And once we understand the Bahir, we understand the Sfirot, and hopefully the next, I can do that in three or four minutes, and then we can move on to the Zohar. Because the Zohar is the next big movement that's going to happen. But it's important to understand the significance of the Bahir.
Those of you, by the way, who are interested in the Bahir, and in fact, um, <laughs> some people, some, for some people, the Bahir is the first Kabbalistic book they ever read, and it's the only book they ever read because you could spend a lifetime just inside the Bahir. So although we're going to talk about the next 900 years of development, you could spend your entire lifetime just in the Bahir. But I want to talk about the Sefirot. The divine God creates the world. Not just created the world, but creates constantly. God essentially exists outside time, but the whole of reality is constantly created and interacted with by the divine. The divine is embedded in reality and emanated into reality, emanates into reality and is inside reality as much as outside it. And when I say reality, I know that some of you are thinking, oh, I haven't defined reality, David. Well, mm -hmm. I'm going to take the common understanding of reality, in other words, this. This, unless I'm on some amazing drugs from my perspective, this. The revealed, fundamental revealed principle that Kabbalah wants you to understand is that God interfaces with reality in a series of, in, in, in an arrangement of creative modes. Creative modalities by which anything idea, object, concept, substance, anything comes into being. It comes into being through ten creative modalities, all of which are involved in the creation of whatever it is that's being created and whatever it is that's being revealed. Those creative modalities, of which there are ten, we call the Sfirot. And the Sfirot, as you can see, when I write it in Hebrew, you will see that obviously at the root of that, at the root of that word, are the letters Samach Peiresh. Well, in just endless speculation on what that word actually is derived from. It could, it could be related to the spore, which is to count. They could be numbers. They can also be related to the idea of what today in English even we call sapphires. They can even be related to what we might today in English call spheres. All of these etymologies and more come together. I'm sure there's a couple of possibilities of I mean, there's also, don't forget that there's the whole concept of sipur le saper, to tell, to relate. And, goes without saying, of course, sefer, a book. But the sefer as a book is unlikely what we're indicating here. We're more likely to be indicating modes, whether we see them as spheres, or we see them as jewels, or however we see them, or as numbers. There are ten of them. All reality is created through this sphere. 
I'm only going to spend another minute on this because I can see that I'm losing some people. But stay with me, because without this, this is very difficult to understand the evolution of the ideas. These ten, certainly probably round about the time that the Bahir is written, were more or less seen in a kind of unfolding, graded way, levelled pretty much hierarchically. <laughs> All of these spherot have names. They all have names. And they all represent divine creation and divine interaction with the world. I know that some of you are going to think, oh, is he going to put the names of the sphere up there? Yes, but not yet. I just want us to understand, or not understand, the concept of the sphere up. Yeah? Now. The Bahir does just talk about the Sfirot uh, as divine creative modalities in some kind of vacuum. The Sfirot are embedded in our reality. One of the ways in which they are embedded in our reality is through Jewish history itself. Jewish history over time, due to its major players, is all cosmic representation of the unfolding of the Sfirot. Now, I'm going to have to jump because otherwise we will not have time. Towards the end of the 12th century, those of you who are interested in the Sefer of Bahir should know that you want your Hebrew to be good enough to be able to go through it without translation, but if you really feel not confident of doing that, it was excellently translated uh, and outstandingly annotated that means a commentary upon to explain it by Arya Kaplan that is one edition of the translation of Bahir it's been translated by a few people but I would recommend Arya Kaplan's translation of the Sefer <coughs> Bahir if you want to really really come to terms with a Kabbalistic text if you want to just have a few Kabbalistic books in your library that is one that I would recommend I'd also recommend if you want uh, Kaplan's translation of the Sefer Yetzirah but that's a bit overwhelming. The Bahir is beautifully translated by him. But at the end of the 13th century, another revelation appears that takes the whole doctrine and understanding of the Spirot a step further. And that, of course, is the appearance of the Zohar. Now I've got to explain just so that you're thinking I'm not just listing books on the board. You can imagine in a talk like this, I don't have time to talk about things on this incredibly important. The Bahir is very insignificant, but the Bahir to the Zohar is like going from a biplane that was invented by the Wright brothers, yeah, to a 747. Or an Airbus A380, I don't even know. What has happened to these ideas and this revelation, this level of mystical exploration and revelation that we're not finding written on the page but must have been being developed as an oral transmission and a mystical oral transmission is now reaching its full flowering in the Zohar. The Zohar is thousands of... the Bahia is like this. 
the Zohar is like this. It's thousands of pages. <coughs> it's effectively one great, big, gigantic poem written in Aramaic, composed in Aramaic, but an Aramaic that belongs uniquely to the Jewish people is a, a language that was composed in order to be able to encapsulate these concepts that it wanted to give over. It's not heresy to say that the Zohar is from 13th century Spain. You are aware that there is a fault line in Jewish scholarship, are you not, about the Zohar? It's very, very contentious. And it basically falls on the line of secular academic scholarship versus religious scholarship. In the religious world, the Zohar was written by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai at Tana, a student of Rabbi Akiva living in the second century after the Bar Kokhba revolts. According to academia, the Zohar emerges in 13th century Spain because it uh, was written in 13th century Spain. But either way, it's not an issue. We don't always have to be looking back, looking back at revelations that we're trying to live up to. Revelations happen constantly throughout Jewish history because all of Jewish history is cosmically important. All of it, including our own generation. So the fact that revelation like the Zohar would come into the world in the 13th century should not pose a problem for anybody. It appears to pose a problem for a lot of conservative people that get freaked out at the idea that there was anything innovative in Judaism. After, you know, after two and a half thousand years ago. But that's simply not the case. Judaism is reinventing itself all the time because we are working at a vibration of divine emanation. The Zohar is a thousands of pages in this Aramaic that describes the relationship between the people of Israel in the world and God. Its starting point, in fact, is not even necessarily God. It's not even to talk about God. Talk about us. In that sense, it's kind of existential. Most systems, intellectual systems of the Middle Ages were starting, well, there you've got God, and blah, 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 blah. but it actually starts with us. And what's our condition in the world? And why is God letting this happen? And what are we doing? Who are, who, whoa, 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 who are we? Now, as Rabbi Shimon famously says in the Idrullah section of the Zohar, the Zohar, by the way, is not some great big homogenous blob. It's got lots of different literary layers within it. It's a ginormous composition. <coughs> the Zohar wants us to understand. Now, I'm not saying that these ideas are not in the Bahir, if you were to read the Bahir carefully and try and see them in there. But they're not where the Bahir is. This is where the Zohar is. The Zohar wants us to understand that these Sfirot, these creative modalities of the Divine, don't just sit one under the other like a list of terms. They are deeply interactive. And their arrangement is reflective 
of a very significant concept, and that is what we call Dmut Ha'adam, the form of the human. The form of the human. The tense philosophy, in fact, sit like this, where we have head and body and arms and legs. It is not the case, it is not the case that we have reified the Spirot into some divine form, God forbid, but the exact opposite. We look like we do because we are reflections of divine creativity. We, individually and collectively, are actually microcosmic packages of divine creative potential. Human beings are nothing less. That's why human beings are incredibly special and they are very important in the universe because we are actually even built in the divine form. Which Genesis tells us. Which Genesis tells us. And that's why we look like this. Because the way that God creates and interacts and intervenes with the world is in the interrelationship of that pattern of the energies. Now, these spherot, stay with me, it's warm, I know, and this is difficult ideas, but it's about to get exciting, stay with me. Because the reality is, and I'm going to say something that I probably shouldn't even, I'm not going to go into this in detail, I'm not. But the reality is, is that this symbology is parallel to <laughs> the symbology of the form of the divine name itself. The divine name itself is representable in Dmut Ha'adam. Put your hand up if you understood what I just said. Put your hand up if you know what I'm talking about. Uh, because, because the letters of the divine name, when written vertically, make an Adamic form. And that fundamental point occupies half of Kabbalistic literature. The implication, of course, the implication is, is that we as humanity are far more of the divine than we realize. That the essence of the divine is actually challenged through us as human beings. Not just collectively as humanity, but as individuals. Our uniqueness and our individuality, and hence our free will, philosophically, is the one thing that we share with the divine. But I'm never getting myself. Just one more minute on the sphere because it's important to understand the dynamics of what I'm talking about. Otherwise, people are going, what's he talking about? Some of you are familiar with this. I'm going to do it very quickly. Yeah? 
the top sphira is what we call keter. Keter means crown. This is chokhmah. You're saying wisdom, but I just said at the beginning of the talk that chokhmah is chokhmah. <laughs> Bina, which is commonly translated as understanding. Yeah? I'm only going through the names very, very quickly, and I'm just going to show a few things. These belong in the head of the Sfirot, because they really are the intellectual components. In fact, if we were to properly represent this, watch. If we were to properly represent this, Keter would not be here. Keter would be here. Verstehst? It is in fact the Malkut of the level above. And it's encompassing. When Keter is not up here and embedded, it actually appears here under Chochmah and Binah as Da'at. Knowledge. Knowledge is internalized and processed superconsciousness. Da'at. That's why you get Chochmah bin Da'at equals Chabad. Because the whole philosophy of Chabad, and we'll talk about this next week when we talk about Chassidut, is really focused upon these intellectual aspects, which both exist cosmically, Manan, the Sfirot, and the different higher realms, and in us. Why? Why do they exist both in the higher worlds and in us? And we are reflections of that. Alright. This is chesed. Chesed means benevolence, loving kindness. This is an outgoing energy. This is the pouring forth. This is what we might call the green light. Traffic. Go. Gvura. I'm doing this very quickly. Each of this you could write books. In fact, books have been written. Gvura. Strength or might. Representing limitation. The red lights on traffic. If all traffic was green lights, it would be mayhem. And if all traffic was red lights, it would never move. You need both of them to create the harmony we call traffic. A banal analogy, I know, but it works quite well. And this harmony of those two out and in, or extension and limitation, is what we call tiferet. Which the real kind of uh, essential... In, uh, implication of which is harmony. It means beauty, but it means a harmonious beauty. Hod and, oh sorry, Netzach and Hod, Netzach and Hod reflect Chesed and Gvura, but at a much more engaged level after they've been processed through Tiferet. These are now engaging into the world uh, in, in, in an active way. All of these energies, all of these energies are collected in Yesod, foundation, which is represented in Dmuta Adam as the genital organ, and Yesod, of course, uh, being that primary foundation, amends itself very, very well to those who've tried to synthesize the Sephirot with the chakra system or other, or Kundalini or other systems that are coming, or other ideas that are, or not ideas, um, spiritual bodily frameworks that are coming from other spiritual systems. And then finally, everything is realized in Malchut, which means kingship, sovereignty. So up here we have the symbol, the Keter, the crown, but here we have the actual realized kingdom. 
and this is Mutadam. These are the names of the Spirit. This is how they interact. Now, but I remember, I'm only hovercrafting, I'm touching the surface. Now, this symbolic structure underlies everything, including, as I said, Jewish history. So, for example, Abraham is a full representation of the concept of Chesed. Yitzchak, Isaac, is a full inner, inner represent, cosmic representation of Gvura and Jacob of Tiferet. If you, if you spoke to a non-Kabbalist, a non-Kabbalist might say Abraham was known for having the attribute of Chesed, of kindness. But a Kabbalist would say no, Abraham is Chesed. Everything written about Abraham, everything we understand about the life of Abraham from the Torah, every aspect of it is an aspect of the Sefira of Chesed. These six Sefirot form their own set, just as these three form their own set, these six Sefirot form their own set, and therefore equal the letter Vav in the name, in the divine name. The Chochmah is represented as Yud, the Bina is Hay. The Zohar goes into all of this very, very deep and complex understanding between the Sefirot, the divine name, the patriarchs, history, reality, God. It really, really brings us face to face with the divine encounter. And it's very clear that the Jewish people <coughs> are in a bit of trouble. We're in this exile. But of course this exile has a purpose. And it is from the depths of this exile that we have this revelation that is going to transform us and transform the world. Because that's our purpose. But first of all the Zohar has to reveal to us what that world is ecstatically. And that world is the cosmic reality of divine unity. All of this, all of this, I have to tell you something. Some of you may not realize, I have to take this as a preface before I say what all of this is. There are genders in the world. There, no, not agendas. Genders. Oh, quite a few. <laughs> the Tsar is not afraid of understanding humanity's essential condition as being gendered. But you're not really who you are. I mean, you think, you know, you're not, you're not what you see in the mirror. <laughs> Believe me, it is. You, you are, <laughs> you are a soul. You are a nishama. This is the bodily apparatus. This is just a bit of hardware that you can interface with this reality. But in essence, you are a nishama. You are a soul. Sometimes your soul has appeared in history as a man, and sometimes as a woman. But in essence, all nishamot are feminine. Hallowsville. <laughs> Sisters, we are all women. <laughs> but in this reality, 
we are born sometimes in various generations into male bodies. But even our maleness is part of the general concept of the Jewish people, which is feminine, which is Knesset Israel. The highest spiritual dimension of Knesset Israel, what we are really an embodiment of, is an aspect of the divine, which is the feminine aspect of the divine, which is the Shekhinah. <coughs> All of these Sfirot are masculine. And Malchut, the Shekhinah, is feminine. The Zohar is deeply, deeply preoccupied with the concept of uniting masculine with feminine. Therefore, the Zohar does not shy away from erotic and sexual imagery. Of course, the great massive text for the Zohar, apart from the Torah itself, is of course Shira Shirim. The Zohar sees the unity of man and woman as the true embodiment of the divine. And we're obviously not going into that in detail now, but that has had a huge impact on resisting, on resisting the tendencies within Gnosticism, which subsequently reared its head in Christianity, to see sexuality and the unity of men and women in sexuality as something undesirable or something not quite right. Judaism, it's not, Judaism and Kabbalists are not just okay with sex, they're deeply into it. <laughs> now, obviously in a very holy way, I'm not talking about you. <coughs> Kabbalistsilike.com. Now, these are the Sfirot. Now, the Zohar's, the Zohar's impact is immeasurable. Immeasurable. Ouch. Um, I don't want to go as long as I went last week. I may have to go five minutes. This is a bit The Zohar's impact. Now, those of you who are interested in seeing what the Zohar says, because my summary is not even adequate to summarize, but uh, should know, of course, that the Zohar has been translated into English a number of times. The big daddy translation that everybody is using now is the most recent one, which is, uh, you may have seen it, the yellow volumes, the Pritzker translation, which was done between about 2002 and finished last year, 2017. Had quite a few contributions from Melbourne as well. But the Pritzker Zara, which is in 12 volumes, is a very big thing. Uh, but if those of you who want to get into the Zohar, get a hold of a volume of that and dive in. There's, the Kabbalistic ideas are transmitted through their texts. And I can't stress that enough that we need to engage with text. Yes. Sure, sure, sure. It's you'll you'll see it if you look for it online or in shops or anywhere. You'll it's referred to as the Pritzker Zohar, since Margot Pritzker sponsored the whole thing, and the translation is by Danny. Oh, Danny Matt. A couple of the volumes, one of the half volumes were actually done here in Melbourne. So it was quite a, it's a huge project. Uh, there's another translation, the Sonsino translation, which is from the 1930s, 
which I like, but a lot of people find un kind of a little inaccessible. Danny's got a lot of notes there explaining what's going on, and he's a poet, so his translation is very beautiful. But it's a very big project, so you might want to go with a smaller, more condensed translation. I, if those of you who are interested in studying Kabbalistic literature beyond this, I cannot recommend some familiarity with the Zohar enough. You need to become familiar, at least with the style and basic themes and what the Zohar is doing. The Zohar is laid out according to the Torah readings of the week. So, for example, this coming Shabbat is Baha'alotcha, so we know that there's this whole section of Zohar on Baha'alotcha, basically dealing with the Kabbalistic reading of the verses that we're talking about. It takes you in to a whole other world. It really does. It exists. It's set. It's set in 2nd century Palestine, just outside a cave where Rabbi Shimon has had these great revelations. He's surrounded by students. They go wandering through 2nd century Palestine. They have strange encounters, but at every stage it is revealing, revealing, revealing the most phenomenal and profound mysteries of the meaning of Torah and the meaning of being Jewish in the world and what we can actually achieve in the world if we realize who we are and what we have in front of us. Some parts of the Zohar a little more dark. Some parts of the Zohar go deep into the concept of exile and what's causing the exile and how we can get out of the exile. Just bear in mind the summary of all that is, as the Tikkun Zohar says, that in exile everybody is stupid. Because exile is a dislocation and we do not realize that we're not awake. Alright, now once we have the Zohar, we're really already inside the history of Kabbalah and you could spend your time in the Zohar saying, my name, I'm a Zohar scholar and that's it. Right? And I don't really read anything, I'm a Kabbalist. My world is the Zohar. And the Zohar is a world. But a lot's happened since the Zohar. <coughs> a lot has happened since the Zohar. But the Zohar's contribution, the Zohar, the foundational literature and symbology of the Zohar because the Zohar gives other Aramaic names to the Sefirot that have not yet appeared. Chokhmah, for example, in the Zohar, is not called Chokhmah. The Zohar is not talking about the Sefirot by the names. It knows the names of the Sefirot, but the Sefirot have evolved now into other uber-symbolic concepts. What is Chokhmah known as in the Zohar? Abba. What's Bina known as? Imma. Higher and father, mother, higher father and mother. The Vav, the six Firot of the body are known as the Iran Pin, the lesser countenance. Malchut is referred to explicitly, right throughout the Zohar, as Nukva, which is the Aramaic for female. The unity between Kudsha Brichu, the Holy One, blessed be He, which is basically what God is called in the Midrash, with the Shekhinah, is the essence of the performance of all mitzvot. These are not just ideas. The Zohar is telling you how to perform mitzvot with an intent to unify God with the Shekhinah. To basically help God become one in the world. Through humanity, through humanity, becoming an open and complete and pure and holy conduit for divine energy that can create a world in which God can reside as one. Now, that's all fine. But, 
for the next 250 years. No one really understood the Zohar. Really? <laughs> like we're reading and we're going, what is this? So it didn't sell that well. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, its, it's transmission and uh, diffusion was not simple. First of all, because it's all manuscripts. And I mean, even today, all the manuscripts that we have from the Middle Ages, we have a few dozen manuscripts that survived till today. So the diffusion was difficult. The material was difficult, but everybody was talking about it and using it, its terms and its ideas, but not even sure what those ideas were. Now you would know, and we would talk about this in a different talk, and I can't go into this now, but historically you would know that there was this thing called the Spanish expulsion at the end of the 15th century. We touched on it a little last week. It affects all ideas, intellectual and spiritual. Yeah? A couple of generations after that, we see a revival of the Jewish world in a place that's going to become the center of the Jewish world spiritually for about 50 years, and that place is Tzfat. And in Tzfat, we're living the great halachic minds of that generation and the great Kabbalistic minds of that generation, literally down the street from each other. And Sfat saw one Kabbalist and spiritual seeker and mystic sage arrive after another. The greatest of all of them, who only passed away when he was 48 years old, in around 1570, was Rabbi Moses Cordovero. We call him the Ramak. When you're at that dinner party, don't say Rabbi Moses Cordovero, say the Ramak. No one's going to ask any questions after that. <laughs> now, Rabbi Moses Cordovero took all of Zoharic literature and kind of did a little bit of a rumbum with it. He synthesized it and outlined its main features in a very, very famous work that's immensely influential called Pardes Rimonim, which literally means an orchard of pomegranates. Very influential book. In Pardes Rimonim, he basically explains the symbology underlying the Zohar and explains it philosophically. Now, not rationally philosophically, but as a kind of a panentheistic Neoplatonism talking about nature and God and how that's all reflected in the ideas and symbols of the Zohar. It basically was the biggest thing about the Zohar by the time you get to 1570. And then, just a few months before the Ramak passed away, a young man in his early 30s arrived in Tzfat. He was born in Jerusalem, this man, and grew up in Egypt. And he sat on an island that his uncle owned in the Nile and he sat with his copy of the Zohar probably, probably a first a first edition printed Zohar. The Zohar was printed for the first time in Mantua in 1558 obviously those of you who are wondering why that printing wasn't invented until nearly 1500 and the fact that within half a century we have Every major Jewish text printed is astounding. 
1558 is the Zohar, and in 1570, this man called Isaac Luria turns up, and when he first arrives in Tzvah, people think that he is there to study and to learn. But it soon becomes apparent that he is not there to learn, he is there to teach. And he, over the course of about 22 months, after the passing of the Ramak, he waited until the Ramak passed away, and then gathered a group, a small group around him, and downloaded to them, because there's no other word to really describe it, downloaded to them a vision of the divine and an understanding of the Zohar that completely exploded the whole of Jewish thought and the whole of Jewish mysticism and the whole of everything we thought we understood about the Zohar and is basically the last great revelation Kabbalistic revelation until today the story of Kabbalah of the last 450 years has been coming to terms with the teachings of Isaac Luria. Isaac Luria did not write stuff down. Everything was written down by his pupils. There are four or five main pupils, and there's basically one or two main, main pupils. And at the end of the day, there's really only one pupil that everybody learns from. And this series of revelations did not just revolutionize Jewish thought and Jewish practice and Jewish spirituality and transform it. It transformed world understanding as well. This is not some Jewish guy sitting in Svati thought, yeah, I'll write a few things and we learn it today. Newton and Leibniz were reading Luria. His cognitive and spiritual shift was very, very much a part of what was going to go on and become the whole humanist strain within the Enlightenment and is still part of where humanity's general spiritual direction is heading. Everything you thought you knew about God, forget about God. God left this place before it was even created. Whereas we might say that Maimonides put God up there rationally and kind of the Tsar brings it down, the Ari goes, it's way beyond anything even the Rambam could have negated. We understand, we understand that the world is created from nothing. We learned that last week, right? We know that from Sanji, we know from the Rambam, we know it. It's now a basic tenet of Jewish thought. Where is the nothing in a God that is everything? Where's this nothing? What are you talking about? God is in a sense one and God is also infinite as well as God is nothingness. 
the infinite contracted itself into itself to create a vacuum inside the infinite divine, otherwise nothing could exist that would even be able to perceive itself as separate from the divine. That act is the famous Simpson. Into that vacuum inside God, God re-emanates in the form of a line. That's the light coming in. The divine light coming into the vacuum. As it progresses, this is a sphere, so it's going towards the center of the sphere. As it's progressing in, it's emanating circular spherot. By the way, of course, the straight lines are masculine, the circular lines are feminine, but that's a whole other thing. Ten of them, they are the spherot. As well, obviously, as well, the spherot are coming in in linear form in Dmut Ha'adam, Dmut Adam, in Adamic form. That means structured along those three lines as we looked at, which we call the tripartite structure of Adamic form. <coughs> but these spherot cannot handle the light that's coming in. It's too great for them. And they smash. And they smash. They actually, when you read the Ari, and you read Chaim Vital's account of the way the Ari gave it over, they actually explode. That event, the explosion of the vessels of the light, of the of the Sfirot, the Sfirot are coming in as lights, but those lights are actually vessels for even higher lights that are coming out. <coughs> And they explode in what we call Shvirata Kelim, the smashing of the vessels. Now, there is a new light that comes in. A new light comes in, which is the light of Ma. Those who are listening. That new light is the light of Ma. The light of what? The light of Adam comes in and starts to fix everything. Now, the Sfirot are not acting independently, but they're acting in integration as Dmut Adam, as, as, as Adamic form, in the course of which they create four worlds. You have to understand what an incredible summary this is of the Ariadne. <laughs> Four worlds, the world of emanation, the world of creation, the world of formation, and this world, the world of action, the world of doing. This is the world we live in, and this is the one world that is yet remained to be fixed. We have to regather the pieces of the broken vessels and put them together so that they can contain the divine light. That process is called Tikkun. That process is called Tikkun. When you're running around the mood conferences and writing to the AJN and you're going, ah, Tikkun Olam, you have to understand that that's a concept that the Ari introduced as just one concept in our fundamental understanding of what we're doing as humanity. 
The world is fractured. We are fixing it. Wasn't Jonathan Sachs who made that up? <laughs> These three, in a sense, dialectic processes, Tsimtsum, Shvirat Kelim, and Tikkun, and I'm basically giving you Yeshem Shalom's adumbration of those ideas, but I think it's as good as any, are the fundamental framework of Lurianic Kabbalah and his phenomenal contribution. As I said, these are deep ideas, and obviously I have to stop now, even though, in a sense, the story only begins now, because the last four centuries we have been working out what it is that the Ari was actually talking about. In the course of his discussions, which is thousands of pages of notes by his students, all of the symbologies of all the previous layers of Kabbalistic teachings are integrated so we start to understand where everything sits in relation to everything else. But at the core, at the core are these two fundamental symbolic structures of the Sfirot and the divine name, which we are repairing. It becomes apparent through the Ari that we are, of course, the final letter of the name. We are the feminine aspect of God. We are that which needs to become whole in order to contain the divine light so that we can reflect it back. It is no coincidence that the Ari comes kind of a century and a half after the developments that are brought about by the transformation. Remember I spoke last week about Crescas and that kind of shift from knowledge to love. The idea that we reflect divine light back to God, but ultimately we have to fix this world because we're not concerned with individual salvation. We are concerned with redemption. It starts, of course, with ourselves, that transformative effect, because everything we're talking on the cosmic level applies to us individually. Whatever is above is also below. Whatever is below is also above. But in the course of the last four centuries, a lot of different movements and thoughts attempting to understand and put the Ari in a kind of a framework, a schematic framework. Right up until the 20th century, whole new schools of thought are being developed. We may have to do that another time. I have come to the end of where I can get to tonight because I can see some people's brains are just yeah. splattered against the wall. But one of, those, one of those major transformations affected by Lurianic thought we will be discussing next week because next week I've been asked to speak on the revolutionary Hasidic movement and its uh, transformation of paramount importance to the Jewish world and Jewish spirituality which happened in the 18th century so kind of like 200 years after the Ari and how we got there and the effect that that's happened so but always bear in mind that that is really just one of them all of the different schools of Kabbalah that you've heard of whether they are meditative rishash techniques or whether they come from the Vilna Gaon or whether they are Shlagian techniques Shlagian Kabbalah which evolves into the Kabbalah the Madonna studying and all of these different things are di emergent from different schools. The Ramchal, Moshe Chaim, all of the different schools that have emerged in the last 400 years. But we're going to look at Hasidut next week. I know that in some ways what I have spoken about has been incomplete and confusing for many of you, but it is fairly contained. If you've understood, if you've understood that Kabbalah is transmitted through its major text, if you've understood that it is evolving our ideas and understanding and revelation, but it's not, Kabbalah does not exist as an independent exercise from reality. It affects the person who studies it. It affects, 
It affects the world we live in. It creates history as much as it is part of it. So I urge you to maybe begin that journey. I'm happy for people to ask me uh, independently, privately questions on anything I've spoken about. But to have that framework, to understand how it's evolving over time is already useful. I'm glad we made a start on that. So thank you for listening. out more about David Solomon's books, recordings and classes, or to support his work and teachings for just a few dollars a month, visit davidsolomon.online.